Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hi guys, welcome back. So today we're talking all about blood sugar balance, insulin resistance and how to improve insulin sensitivity with Dr. Rita Marie Loscalzo. For those who don't know, Dr. Rita Marie is a licensed doctor of chiropractic and certified in acupuncture and is a diplomat of the American Clinical Nutrition Board. She's a certified clinical nutritionist with a master's degree in human nutrition and has completed a 500 hour herbal medicine certification program. Dr. Luscalzo is passionately committed to transforming exhausted high achievers all across the globe into high energy people who love their lives and live life to their full potential. She founded the Institute of Nutritional Endocrinology so that she could be instrumental in transforming our current broken disease management system into a true healthcare system where each and every practitioner is skilled at finding the root cause of health challenges. She specialises in using the wisdom of nature married with the modern scientific research to restore hormonal balance with a special emphasis on thyroid, adrenal and insulin imbalances. So in this episode, some of the subjects that we cover include what exactly happens when we eat food and how high blood sugar leads to high insulin and therefore insulin resistance. I think we hear this term thrown around these days and not many people actually know the physiology behind it. So she covers it in really simplistic terms signs and symptoms that your blood sugar may be out of whack, how high insulin can negatively affect our thyroid, our adrenals and sex hormones and conditions like PCOS, why she recommends blood sugar tracking to all of her clients and we also include the optimal ranges to shoot for and these are completely different to the conventional labs and lab markers that you may have been told. You're all in the normal ranges with your glucose and that's not enough. You need comprehensive testing and you need to be in optimal, not normal ranges. The best diet and lifestyle modifications to make to help improve blood sugar control and insulin sensitivity. And side note, it's not all about carbs. They are important, but there's so many other things like nutrient deficiencies, inflammation, physical exercise that can have a huge impact. And as always, all the resources will be linked in the episode show notes. So I'm really excited to share this with you. I love chatting with Dr. Reese Marie. She's just a bundle of energy and I really think you'll like this one. And always let me know what you think. Screenshot this episode on Instagram, tag me in it and let me know your thoughts. I always love to hear that. So let's hop right into the episode. So hi, Dr. Rita Marie. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, hi, I'm so excited to be here and I'm really excited about what we're going to talk about. Yeah, I know as the expert on blood sugar and insulin resistance, I had to have you on. And I've been following your work personally for a number of years now. And listen to the podcast episodes you have and you've been on a lot of different like summits and there's youtube videos so many resources for people to look into but i had to have you on the hormones in harmony podcast so yeah thank you and i'm excited to chat with you today so to start off could you tell us a bit more about who you are and what it is that you do 
Yes, absolutely. So um, I have, I'm in functional medicine and nutrition, big, big pieces of what I do. And I got into this from my own health challenges ages and ages and ages ago, uh, like 35 years ago. So I've been actually in practice for um, officially almost 30 years now. And what I do is I help people to use choices that they make every day, choices in diet, choices in lifestyle, choices in thought processes, how they breathe, how they move, to actually impact health and actually access the inner wisdom of the body. Because the body wants to be in balance. It's just our lifestyles, our choices, the environment, the toxins, et cetera, the food choices all put us out of balance. So I, I, one of my specialties is insulin resistance and blood sugar balance because I feel like it's one of the core things that affects everything else. So a lot of folks jump in and want to, oh, balance hormones, let's get some estrogen on board, but how do we get more progesterone? When in reality, we really need to look deeper into what are the other imbalances that we need. And, and with insulin, and we're gonna talk a little bit about insulin resistance today, insulin resistance actually contributes to hormone imbalance and resistance of all the other hormones. And we'll talk about what, what hormone resistance is as well to make sure everybody's real clear. Definitely. And I think people, um, and even on this podcast, I have guests on, they talk about like seed cycling and herbs and all of these like fancy things when the foundations often being overlooked and people are eating healthier foods. They're trying to make upgrades, but they're going for like the granola and the, um, the yogurts and they're all still full of sugar and fruit smoothies. They're trying yes. to do a good thing, but they're actually um, not helping the situation that they could actually be making things worse. And so, actually, I was going to say that yeah. actually, a lot of times they're making things worse. Yes. And to start off with, and I mentioned before we hit record that we, I speak about blood sugar balance all the time, but I haven't actually gone into much detail on what exactly blood sugar is, what it means and what is insulin. So can we start there by giving us a bit of a um, overview as to what these things are and these terms, because we're probably going to be using them throughout this whole podcast. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. So when we eat food, regardless of what we eat, the body breaks it down in the digestive tract into its components. And one of the components of that, the fuel from that is glucose. So glucose has to transport from the intestinal tract into the bloodstream where it floats around, but it doesn't do us any good when it's in the bloodstream. What has to happen is it needs to get into the cells. It needs to get into the brain cells, the muscle cells, the liver cells, the heart cells, all the cells in the body. And so the transport vehicle for that to get into the cells is insulin. And insulin is a hormone that gets secreted by the pancreas. And it actually latches on to the, the glucose and helps it get into the cells. Once it's in the cells, then what happens is we have these things in the cells called mitochondria. And that actually takes that glucose and converts it into usable energy that the body can use. So there's a lot that goes into the mechanism of getting the glucose into the cells with the insulin. There's certain nutrients that are required to be there to help make that escort happen. And the cells have to be kind of intact and healthy cells. And when the cells get damaged by bad fats in the diet, by toxins, by things that get into the bloodstream from the intestinal tract that shouldn't, from leaky gut. All of these things contribute to these toxins and uh, lack of nutrients floating around in the bloodstream that prevents that. So when we get into a mode of eating kind of the standard American diet, which I think most of us grew up on, or the 
modified American diet, which is the quote unquote healthier version of the American diet, we end up with a lot of sugar and we end up with a lot of starch that comes in flour products or like most people are eating like 75% of their food as some sort of flour, whether it's pasta or bread or muffins or cakes or granola, they're all getting those things. And that puts a tax on the, on the pancreas, first of all, who are having to produce lots of insulin. So the insulin gets produced and it gets produced. And the more sugar that's eaten, the more starch that's eaten, the more over time insulin gets produced and the cells can get damaged by insulin, what people don't realize. A lot of the problems that diabetics get in that are type ones and they're taking insulin are actually caused by the insulin, the later in life stuff. So there's damage, there's like a price to pay for insulin. Perfect amount, yes, great, that's perfect. But when we have too much, then it can start to cause damage to those cells. So the combination of all of that, the pancreas gets kind of stressed out and can't produce enough or it's producing too much, which is causing damage, causes those cells to become resistant. It's like, stop, mm -hmm. don't produce anymore. I, I, I've had enough, I don't want any more. And we, we develop a condition called insulin resistance. In younger people, you know, in younger ages, and some people can look back and see, oh, it's like that when I was a kid, the overproduction of that insulin before the resistance develops actually causes people to have these high levels of insulin and then the blood sugar drops off dramatically. And these people are like, I need to eat, I need to eat because my blood sugar is low. And as it develops, we develop the resistance and then we may still get those same symptoms of feeling like the blood sugar is low, but the blood sugar isn't low anymore. It's actually the amount of sugar that gets into the cells that goes wrong. You can have a 200 blood sugar, which is very high, and feel like you have low blood sugar symptoms like dizziness and, and lightheadedness and inability to focus because the sugar is in the wrong place. It's in the blood, not in the cells. Absolutely. I've seen that so many times. And with myself personally, I have done like the finger prick glucometers and like the um, continuous, you know, the ones that oh, you can put yeah. in your arms. And I have PCOS as well. And my blood sugar is much better controlled now. But in the past, I would think, oh, I need to eat every two hours. I just can't fast. I would get hangry. I would get shaky and irritable. I would need food immediately. And I would check my blood sugar and it would be sky high. And I thought I was going into like hypoglycemia. And I've had clients do the same. They track it and yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. Yep, yep, I've had that because I have everybody, you know, check their glucose either with the, the finger prick or continuous. So yeah. I think that in the future, every household is going to have a glucometer. That would be amazing. That would save a lot of um, medical bills and um, pharmaceutical drugs being needed with just a, such a simple shift. I know it's a bit of effort to get used to these, and we'll talk about how you test and optimal levels and all of that as we go on. But apart from the the long-term complications of diabetes that we hear about what are some of the short-term or like um beginning symptoms of insulin resistance so some signs of your blood sugar being off maybe typical ones that people may know about and maybe some unconventional ones that people may have no idea are related to blood sugar and insulin exactly so the ones that you just mentioned that you know that feeling angry and irritable and cranky and lightheaded in between meals can actually be sign of high levels of blood sugar and insulin resistance. But what people don't realize is when the fat accumulates around the waist. I, mean, I see a lot of folks who have 
great legs and great arms and there's the belly, you know, almost looks pregnant belly or hanging over the pants. And that can be a sign because the, the fat accumulation around the waist is related to insulin resistance. Fatigue, just in general, not like the in-between meal type fatigue, but hard to get up in the morning, you know, hard to get going in the late afternoon, the drop of energy in the late afternoon, that can be related to insulin resistance. Um, brain fog, we hear this a lot. When I first started talking brain fog was when I experienced it myself when I was in my 20s. Nobody talked brain fog. What is that? I said that to somebody. I said, I feel I have brain fog. Like, what is that? <laughs> right? And the doctor's like, brain fog, what is that? But it's really that feeling of like you can't focus. You yeah. can't, like you're talking to somebody and it's like every bit of effort to even get the words that they're saying to penetrate into your consciousness. And we hear that all the time. Brain fog is a common expression now. And that can be related to insulin resistance as well. So there's a lot of that. And the feeling of being hungry right after you eat or that feeling of needing something sweet right after a meal. It's like, oh, I feel pretty full, but I sure would like a little bit of chocolate right now. You know, that sort mm -hmm. of thing. Really yeah. all our early signs um, and later signs that are dangerous, high blood pressure can be related to insulin resistance because of the way that the insulin affects the, the endothelial linings in the blood vessels and causes them to stiffen and not be able to you know, be elastic enough to allow the blood flow and then the pressure builds up um, and a lot of cardiac things and um, memory, memory problems, memory loss. Yeah, so like pretty much any symptom that you can think of may in some way be related to insulin. We can, we can probably yeah. be safe to say that, yeah. Yeah. And I think people experience that quite frequently. Like I think most people have had the experience where they go to a restaurant and have the bread basket, they have the big bowl of pasta and then they're stuffed, they're really full, they can't have any more food. And then the waiter comes and asks if they want a dessert. And they're like, oh yeah, I can, I can fit, fit that in my stomach and they can just eat that. They're craving the sugar and then yeah. they go home, they're a little bit tired and then they're hungry a couple of hours later. And that is the, the insulin that's playing a role in that as well. And how is insulin and blood sugar um, related to hormones? So this being the hormones in Harmony podcast, I have a lot of women who have thyroid issues um, and also PCOS is a big one. How is that involved? Well, there's a lot of ways that it's involved. So let's start with insulin being high because that's typically happening in an insulin resistant situation. So the insulin is high. It affects thyroid hormones. It affects the secretion of TSH. It affects the, the receptors. So we talk about insulin resistance, and that's common. More and more people are talking like leptin is another hormone. We talk leptin resistance. But in reality, you can have resistance to just about every other, other hormone. And thyroid resistance is a commonly overlooked uh, situation in people with thyroid symptoms. There's so many people, I'm sure you see it, where they go to the doctor and the doctor says, they say, I think I have a thyroid problem. They have all these situations and they test their TSH and they say your TSH is fine, you don't have a thyroid problem. Or they, even if they're well educated, and they go further and they test their free T3 and free T4 and they test their antibodies, which would be a more thorough, and they say, no, you're fine. It could be a situation of thyroid resistance, thyroid receptor resistance. And there's quite a number of things that can affect that. And one of those is insulin. The high levels of insulin can actually damage the receptors for thyroid as well as for insulin. So that's how the thyroid is related. Um, I would say for the sex hormones, there's a huge interaction. So if someone is on birth control pills and they have high levels of estrogen, 
that's going to affect their thyroid. It's going to affect the thyroid binding level. When the thyroid levels are not optimal, it affects the secretion in the pancreas of insulin. So if the thyroid levels are not optimal, the insulin levels can't be. And there's a lot of studies that link those two. If you don't get your thyroid under control, then you can't get your insulin levels under control. Well, there's another layer to that, right? You've got these sex hormones. And so many people are on either hormone replacement without properly assessing it, or they're on birth control pills, or they're eating from plastic containers and they're getting all these xenoestrogens and that's affecting the thyroid, which then affects the insulin. The adrenals, right? The adrenal glands were made to keep us safe from tigers. And we don't have a lot of real tigers running around, but we have a lot of virtual tigers right now. Most people that you talk to are going to be are stressed out all the time. They're stressed out because they listen to the news and there's all the gloom and doom. They're stressed out because their jobs are requiring a lot more attention and they're not getting enough time with their family. They're stressed out because they have kids or elderly parents that need care. People are stressed out all the time and now high levels of cortisol affect insulin dramatically. So they affect it indirectly by affecting the thyroid because it creates a thyroid resistance and it, it affects the conversion of thyroids from T4 to T3. But the way it affects insulin is that high level of cortisol, like body's getting ready to run from a tiger. So what does the body do? Mobilize stored sugar. How does it do that? Well, it usually looks for protein because that's just, you know, biochemically, that's the mechanism. So it can be breaking down muscle tissue, um, but it can also go for fat. The breaking down of muscle tissue, I always tell people when you're stressed out, your body is literally converting your muscles in your thighs into belly fat. Because what happens is we mobilize the stored sugars that are stored in protein, that are stored in the liver as glycogen, and we have a, an elevation in the blood sugar. You didn't eat the candy bar, but getting stressed out makes your blood sugar raise as if you just ate a candy bar. And now we have that whole cascade we talked about earlier. So there's a lot of interactions. Yeah, so many, so many different pathways and um, I think, again, people may, may notice this as well, that on this low-carb diet, they're, quote, doing all the right things. But if they're stressed out their mind, they're not sleeping, then they're going to be insulin resistant and still gaining weight regardless. And with the adrenals, I think it works the opposite way as well. Having the high blood sugar and high insulin is stressful. So everything's very, there's no, like, isolation of body systems, like most conventional doctors believe. Um, exactly people like you and me understand and the listeners understand that everything's very intimately connected and many of the listeners as well. And me in the past have struggled with skin issues, whether that's acne, rashes, premature aging. Could you talk a bit about how, how high blood sugar can affect our skin? Yeah. So, uh, first of all, the elevation, like when we're, when we're requiring a lot of insulin and the pancreas is producing a lot of insulin because to handle the sugar, First of all, the sugars themselves, right? The high sugar diet, the high starch diet, that affects the skin. That affects the, um, the nutrients that are available that are used up when we're having to, to digest all that sugar and use all that insulin. Those nutrients are also important for skin. Zinc is a super important one for skin health. B vitamins are super important. Our fat-soluble vitamins, all of these things are affected. 
but also those high levels of sugar that contribute to that uh, insulin resistance also contribute to gut dysbiosis. And we have such an interaction between the gut and insulin. There's insulin-like peptides that get produced. There's all sorts of things that get produced. There's like 28 hormones in the gut that get produced to digest a meal. And some of those are directly related to the insulin requirements. So when we're eating a diet that's not balanced, when we're eating a diet that's too high in sugars, when we're not getting good organisms coming in through our foods, through fermented foods, probiotic-rich foods, that's affecting the gut, which affects then the whole insulin stuff. And the gut dysbiosis and the problems in the gut also affects the skin because the skin is a detox organ. Right? And fatty acids that get out of balance, so important for skin health. Well, DHA is a super important nutrient for helping the insulin get into the cells. And DHA is also important for a lot of other things like brain health and, and it's affected, it has an effect on the skin. So That's important. Yeah. I don't think people are aware that it also takes nutrients to process glucose. Uh, so the yes. more sugars and glucose you eat, maybe it's depleting your nutrients a little bit. And with skin issues as well, I know that increased insulin can upregulate sebum production, making mm -hmm. skin more oily and prone to breakouts. And then there's the connection with advanced glycation end products or ages where it kind of, I don't know the whole process, but it kind of affects your, um, your skin and then it can lead to premature aging. So AGE. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And it affects the insulin receptors as well. Those mm. glycation end products, right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Not cool, but you know what I mean? No, <laughs> Not a good thing. And Interesting. There's an effect on testosterone, which mm. we, should, we didn't mention earlier, because people with PCOS, right, they have excess levels of testosterone as a result of this whole insulin cascade, and then, you know, the skin breaks out because of that excess estrogen. Yeah. Absolutely. Balances Mm-hmm. And for you personally, what do you think has a bigger influence on weight? calories or blood sugar and insulin so there's one side of the camp where people say it's just calories in versus calories out they tend to be like personal trainers who just have an overview of um overview of nutrition maybe and then there's the people who it's all about hormones calories don't matter as long as you eat healthy your body will regulate itself what do you think about that i think that there's a balance there right so excess calories are going to contribute to weight gain right but at deficiencies in calories should contribute them to weight loss but i see people who are on very low calorie diets but because of the balance of you know the sugar starch and protein on those diets and also as a result of the timing of when they're eating those calories makes a huge difference on their blood sugar and ketones and so i have people measure blood sugar and ketones on a regular basis and when we can get this mat there's this magical place that happens that suddenly no difference in calories, and actually some people are eating more calories than they were, and they start to lose weight. And I have so many people over and over that have been trying for years and years, and once they get into this, get the blood sugar balance, which naturally balances ketones usually, um, they they have this they the weight just starts to fall off. Mm -hmm. yeah. Ma magically self-regulates when you yeah. give the body what it needs. Yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, it's crazy. And in terms of testing, let's start with the conventional testing, um, maybe what the reference ranges are, um, 
because I know in the UK when we when I ask my clients to get their blood sugar checked they just get fasting glucose and sometimes HbA1c and I know that that's not enough so what would you recommend as being like a full comprehensive panel with optimal ranges as well if possible absolutely so I don't know the UK ranges I know that Mm. I'll convert them so whatever you say I'll put in the show notes the conversion to UK Okay, yeah, because there's charts, you can get them anywhere. Um, So basically, fasting glucose is the typical gold standard. We measure fasting glucose, and as long as it stays in U.S. terms under 100, you're considered perfectly normal, okay? And if it goes between 100 and 120, 125, depending on the lab, then it's considered pre-insulin, pre-diabetes or insulin resistance. Most people, unfortunately, are told, oh, just go lose weight and you'll be fine. And they're not given specific instructions on how to do that. Easier said than done. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Because it's this imbalance that's causing it. So I feel like um, as soon as it's over 100, you're already in trouble and you need to be addressing it. But realistically, if we look at studies, the ideal fasting glucose is no more than 85 no more than 85. As soon as it's going up there, you're, you're putting yourself at risk. And there are some studies that show that you get four times the risk of heart disease when the blood sugar is over 90 versus under 90. That's huge. But the doctors are saying, oh, 90 to 100, you're good. Yeah, everything's fine. Now, going back to this hemoglobin A1C, hemoglobin A1C is an indirect measure of the average glucose over the past three months. And what that is actually a measure of is what percentage of your red blood cells are coated in sugar. And there's a normal amount because we have glucose floating around. Ideally, it should be around five, right? What the normal, what the labs are saying is 5.6. So magically, you go from being completely healthy to insulin resistant when it goes from 5.6 to 5.7. Okay, (laughs) let's just say as you're creeping up in that direction, it's a warning sign. So hemoglobin A1C of 5.6 to 5.7 means that your average over the last three months is about 119, 17 to 19. That's high. Average is that. Well, while you're sleeping is when you know the longest period of time when it's supposed to be in that, like I said, 85 range. And even if you take the the numbers from the conventional, like below 100, if it's 119 on average, that's taking into account eight to 10 hours of it being in that fasting range. It's getting super high at other times in order to have an average of 119. So that's a very unhealthy region uh, um, number. I like to see people between, say, 4.8 to 5.2. I like it really right around that five range. And hemoglobin A1C, unfortunately, at least in the States, maybe they're better in the UK, is usually only tested on people who are already diagnosed as diabetic. So it can be an early warning sign, all right? I had a guy who came to see us after he, he's um, been you know, dealing with his health for a while. And he said that he had never done a hemoglobin A1C because no doctors had ever asked him to do it. And his blood glucose was running typically in the 90s. So he heard about this fair where, you know, they're going to health fair where they're going to do these testing and they're going to do A1C. So he said, great, let's do it. 
And when he got it, he tested. It was eleven. Whoa. Oh my god. I didn't know it went that high. (laughs) Oh yeah, there's that where it goes to fourteen, fifteen, etc. But it was eleven or ten point nine or something like that. And he'd never been told he had a glucose problem. So he was maintaining fasting glucose in the nineties. But during the day, in response to food and stress, he was a very stressed out person, his glucose levels were going through the roof because the average was in the 200, like 250 or something. 240, I think, is, I don't remember the exact numbers, but where his laid out is probably around 240. So it means he was having some super high numbers. Now, as soon as your blood sugar goes above 100, there are studies that show that there's damage that happens to the pancreatic cells that produce the insulin, the islet cells in the, in the pancreas. There are studies that show that once the glucose goes above 120, every single time, not just fasting, but when it goes above 120, we're having damage to the peripheral nerves. And we know that one of the long-term side effects of diabetes is peripheral neuropathy. We also noticed that in this range of 120 to 140, lots of studies showing that the retinal changes that happen in diabetics, the retinopathies are happening in that range. And in fact, a large percentage of people with the retinopathies, their glucose isn't even going above 100. Like, you know, six to 13%, it was the number. But these people didn't even have anything abnormal about their glucose, so or their fasting glucose they were getting peaks that are really dangerous. So A1C is super important and should be tested on people early on. I think, you know, any, the first time anybody gets their, their annual physical with blood work, A1C should be included as a screening. And if it's fine, great. Test it again in five years, right? If it's fine, great. Let's just test it again every five years because as soon as they start to dip into an area where that A1C is climbing, it's suggested that they've de- they're developing what I call pre-insulin resistance. So medically, they say insulin resistance starts at 100. I call it pre-insulin resistance when it's before that, you know, anywhere from the 85 to 100. But also, even in people with an uh, and, uh, fasting glucose of 80, if they're getting these high peaks, as demonstrated when you said, you know, you wore the glucose patch, you do the fingerprint, there's a, there's a problem. And we want to catch people before they have damage that is going to cause long-term problems. So that's the two. But then there's insulin, insulin itself, fasting insulin. Nobody's testing that. Even in diabetics, they're rarely testing it, right? Unless they're like, oh, you've been diabetic a long time. Maybe you're, you know, pancreatic failure. Let's check. But that number can be critical, especially in people who say, oh, I just have these swings and I get woozy and lightheaded if I don't eat. Let's look at what's your insulin level at. And I think fasting insulin is really good. Um, it's missed. At range for fasting insulin, ideally between two and five. The range on the medical testing is up to 12, I think, or 15 or 18. It's a much higher number. And that's a dangerous level. And then the other thing you can do is postprandial insulin, which means like about 45 minutes to an hour after eating, how is the insulin going up? So maybe it's perfectly fine at five or three fasting, but in response to food, your body's just shooting out a boatload of insulin too much, right? So those are important things. I don't do that as often as I do the fasting, 
And if there's problems with the fasting and there's certain criteria, I'll say, okay, let's just do this. Because it requires that they go to the lab, get their insulin tested, fasting, go out in their car, eat a meal, <laughs> and then go back in the lab 45 minutes later and get it tested. Because insulin, unfortunately, there's no more test for it. Yeah, it's a tricky one. And it needs to be like back in the lab immediately. So it really yeah. can't be done, sadly. Maybe in the future, they'll come out with some amazing sure. technology. That would be really fun. I'm sure they will. So those are my favorites. Um, and then I like to, there's another one called, um, called fructosamine, which gives us, it's almost like the um, A1C, but it's a shorter window. It's giving you more of a window of a month. And it's, it's basically looking at, um, uh, instead of looking at the glucose on the red blood cells, it's looking at on amino acids, right? So it's, it's a little bit shorter window. Um, it's an older test that used to be done, and now it's having a resurgence now as being a practice. Yeah, I've never heard of that one before. Interesting. I'll have and to look into that. It's another one, yeah. but that's like more if, you know, if somebody's been having a problem for a while and you know, mm -hmm. they might be um having some pancreatic failure as opposed to you know the insulin is too high but that's an important one to know about because a lot of folks are diagnosed as type 2 diabetics and they're really not type 2s they're type 1s with something called latent adult onset diabetes or latent diabetes autoimmune diabetes of adulthood and it's basically an autoimmune process doesn't come on when they're younger mimics type 2 for a while and but it, there's some critical things to know how to look for that as well. Mm -hmm. And with you recommending testing to your um, patients or clients, how do you like talk me through what they need to do um, in terms of like fasting, how many, how many hours or um, minutes after eating, how many times a day, just on average? Yeah, so to, for the lab testing, you know, it's typically a 12 hour fast, just you know, if you're going into the lab. But in terms of the glucose at home, you want to get more than fasting. So what I typically have people do is get, it, get their glucose in the morning when they first wake up so we know what their overnight is. Get it right before the meal and then start testing at intervals. Now, initially I try to get them, if they're willing, to do it every 15 minutes. Because the peak, what we want to catch is the peak. How high does it go? We don't care what it is two hours later. Because you can be perfectly normal. You can start out at 85 and end up two hours later at 85, which is normal. But you could be going up to 180 in between. How do I know? That's what was happening to me. And I, had, I was totally unaware of it. And it's happened to a lot of my clients. So we have them keep testing until they start to, they get to the peak and they see it come down again. So usually for the first day or two, I'll have them test very regularly every 15 minutes. If we start to see a pattern, like, oh, you always peak at 45 minutes. No matter what you eat, you always peak at 45 minutes. Then we don't have to test all. We just want to see what their peak is. So that's basically how I do it. I usually have it extend out, though. Um, so to two hours is great if it's back to baseline. But if someone has, a, has the symptoms, like you were saying earlier, of, oh, I'm ravenous, right? I've got to have them go to three or four hours to see if it goes down below baseline to see if they are excess producing excess insulin. Mm -hmm. So getting more towards a reactive hypoglycemic state that yeah. a lot of people can. Okay. And yeah. am I right that you don't want it to spike above 120 or is that still too high? I personally don't want it to spike above 110. 
Mm, because it gives it a little leeway. And I found that as I did research, the healthier populations, they never went above 100. And as I, 110, as I was, you know, working with people over time, when they go on a diet that I map out for them, which is really, you know, nutrient dense and low glycemic and really healthy diet, most of them barely go over 100. You know? So 110 is my magic number. But, you know, I tell them if occasionally it goes between 110 and 120, then, you know, it's not going to hurt you in the long run. But if it's consistently there, if it's consistently above 120, for sure, we have a problem. Okay. And I identify the foods that cause it. That's yeah. It. I was going to ask. Yeah. yeah. Are there, like, specific foods? Is everyone very different in your, in your client population? Because um, I know for me personally, something like sweet potatoes really spike my blood sugar weight really high, whereas buckwheat or oats don't. So even though I'm eating maybe like 50 grams of either, the exact amount of carbs, they react very differently in the body. So can you talk a bit about why that may be happening? Yeah, so everybody's, everybody's a little bit different. And, and I don't know if I can actually give as good an explanation of why, so I've had people. I have. I've had people who say I can eat this much banana and my sugar spikes to 180. Mm -hmm. I have somebody else that says, No, I can put five bananas in a green smoothie and my sugar doesn't go anywhere. But give me one corn chip and it spikes. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's all different, right? Certain people buckwheat shoots it up. I've seen that over and over. For me, buckwheat makes my sugar go up. Sweet potatoes, as long as I keep it with a small amount, won't. But if I eat larger amounts, it will. So it's determining. Pineapple for me, boy, I, unfortunately, it goes way up with pineapple. Now, you can control that with what you're eating with the food, right? So if you're eating just a plate of sweet potatoes, it's probably going to go up much higher than if you're eating the majority, like 80% of your plate is greens and you know salad and veggies, non-starchy, and you have a little bit of sweet potato, it's probably going to go up a lot less. So I feel like... The, the glycemic index, it's a guideline, but it's not useful as an overall because it's basically done by averaging thousands, tens of thousands of people, and we're not average. The best analogy to that that I've ever heard was, say you've got a group of seven-year-old boys and you want to buy them sneakers, you know, that you're going to be donating to them to be on the soccer team and they need these shoes. And we look and we say, well, the average shoe size for a seven-year-old boy is a five. And you buy a hundred pairs of size five shoes. How many of those kids are actually going to be able to wear those shoes? Right? <laughs> yeah. Now we have this one-size-fits-all concept of glycemic index and, and all kinds of health-related stuff. And it just doesn't work that way. So I have people map it out and then we have them go through a process, uh, an insulin reset, so that they basically for 30 straight days, they anything that ever raised their sugar above the 110, right? And they keep it there and then they do some exercise and they do some meditation, all the other things that affect it. And at the end of the 30 days, then they'll start to introduce some of the foods, the good healthy foods, not the Cheetos and, you know, M&Ms, but the good healthy foods, like for me, pineapple or blueberries or whatever. And we see, can we tolerate it now that we've helped the insulin receptors to heal somewhat? Do we still need to restrict it? Do we need to go longer? And what do we eat it with? So I determined mangoes shot my sugar up to, I think it was like 135 or 150 if I just ate the mango. But if I took 
you know, half a mango or a quarter of a mango, and I had it in one bowl, and I had a big salad or a green smoothie on the other side, and I drank all the greens, and then I had mango, my sugar didn't go up, right? So it's learning, retraining the body to how to eat so that you don't necessarily have to give up your healthy high glycemic foods or that you, you learn how to eat them in a way that doesn't raise your sugar. Definitely. And I love the nutritional bioindividuality. Uh, bio and people always like send me a message on Instagram, like, what should I eat so I have insulin resistance? I'm like, I've no idea like how many carbs, what types of carbs, because everyone's very different. And I always recommend, like you said, pairing the healthy fats with the, um, the protein and the carbohydrates to slow the absorption. But I have heard from a few practitioners saying that pairing carbohydrates with fat actually increases the insulin response i see you're shaking your head okay (laughs) you agree yes it does and it doesn't necessarily raise the glucose so Mm -hmm. the studies i've looked at is it raises the insulin but not necessarily the glucose so we can't tell so i just tell people to stay away from carbs with fat not carbs from a vegetable standpoint but the vegetable carb is mostly fiber right but when you're eating fruit and fat it's probably not a good idea Mm -hmm. like oh i'm just going to eat um two avocados with my mango and it's not going to raise my sugar yeah but it could be raising your insulin and it's causing all the problems so i I avoid that um as much as possible i have people avoid that you know periodically okay they put blueberries in their chia porridge not a big (laughs) deal right (laughs) but um but in general yeah that's true but fiber is what really slows it down and fiber like your high fiber foods, your you know, romaine lettuce is a high fiber food. Broccoli is a high fiber food. So if you can combine those foods with some of the sweeter things like the fruits, then you can, you can actually do it. And you don't miss out on all the amazing nutrition in your, your fruit. Uh, you know, I don't recommend it for eating, like I said, Cheetos and M&Ms because there's no nutritional value there. And in fact, there's some negative nutritional value. Yeah. And I think this is where people get confused because you hear don't eat fruit on its own because it'll spike your blood sugar. But then if you pair it with fat, it's going to spike your insulin. (laughs) But if you're doing all of the other things, like you said, just having some blueberries with some um, inner chia seed pudding isn't going to like ruin all of your hard work, but just something to be mindful of. Yeah. But it's mindful. Just definitely be mindful and pairing it, like I said, with the greens. So when I went to Hawaii a couple of years ago, I was recently there again, but I didn't do much in the way of fruit. But I was like, ah, oh, it was mango season. Ah, and they had all this amazing tropical stuff that I thought was phenomenal. But if I just sat down for breakfast or lunch or whatever and ate that as a meal, my sugar would go through the roof. But I made a, a 32 ounce green smoothie that had no fruit in it. That was really tasty and savory. And I didn't put the fruit in there because I wanted to eat the fruit. Mm-hmm. So drink some smoothie eat some fruit drink some smoothie eat some fruit and i figured out how much fruit i could eat with how much smoothie and i was able to really enjoy my tropical fruit and is it right with the timing of when you eat the macronutrient so say you have a meal um, with protein fat and carbs if you eat the carbohydrates first is that going to have a more effect on your blood sugar than if you were to eat them last yeah more likely this okay there's nothing else there to buffer it and what about snacking? What's your, what's your thoughts on snacking? Because again, we hear people, you have to eat the five mini meals a day to support your metabolism, or you have to do the fasting like we did ancestrally, having two meals, three meals a day and going yep. between meals without food. What, where do you stand? 
Yes, so eating five meals a day is great if you want to gain weight. <laughs> and I will tell that to folks who are underweight, have super high metabolism, and they're trying to follow this blood sugar plan because they also have these high levels. I'm like, I'm going to tell you a secret, but don't tell anybody else. I want you to eat every three hours. Don't wait the six hours between meals because you, your body burns it so quickly that you need more food. But if you're not trying to gain weight or you're not an athlete, you know, that's out there and burning up so many calories, it's not a good thing to do because realistically, insulin is a fat storage hormone. And if you eat constantly throughout the day, you're constantly having elevated levels of insulin and you're going to store the fat that way. So we need gaps, we need fasting. When we do windows of four to six hours, we start to get elevations in our, our growth hormone levels. Growth hormone does the opposite of insulin. And in fact, uh, growth hormone and insulin don't coexist very well. So if the insulin level comes up, growth hormone comes down. And growth hormone is super important for putting on lean, doing maintenance and restoration and healing of tissue, and also burning fat. And so when you go out and, and do um, heavy duty exercise or burst training, 30 seconds of all out, you know, your growth hormone levels go way up about an hour and a half. But if you right after that, go ahead and, you know, drink a smoothie with fruit in it or, you know, eat some fruit or do the, the drinks like the Gatorade type of thing, you've boarded that growth hormone. So I think gaps of fasting um, for people who can do it, having an intermittent fasting window of 12, everybody should have at least 12 hours, but up to 16 hours can be phenomenal. But certain folks who are in adrenal fatigue need to work on you know, some of the other stuff first. So I start out with getting people to eat their first meal within an hour or two of getting up. But then we play with that and say, wait a minute, you know, if you wanna get the benefits of intermittent fasting, let's just see if you can delay that longer or for a lot of folks it's have that breakfast first thing in the morning have a six hour gap and have lunch and then either for dinner skip it or just have you know a little bit of salad or something so that they are extending the fasting window the magic of healing happens in the fasting window not in the feeding window yeah because when your body when you're eating all of your energy and um body's processes are going to be working on breaking down that food and that's why we heal and repair when we're asleep. So unless you're like waking up in the middle of the night, raiding the fridge, then <laughs> that, that's going to be, a, I know exactly. Right before bed. They yeah. eat right before and they're told to make sure you have a, a snack right before bed. That's one of the worst things mm -hmm. do because it affects your growth hormone spike usually happens in your first sleep cycle. And if you've eaten right before bed, you lost that. And it's the highest growth hormone spike. So growth hormone goes up and down throughout the night, but it's kind of like, smaller mm -hmm. and smaller you can miss that first one because you just ate you know whatever even a good snack a scoop of almond butter or you know i don't know what else people are being told to eat hummus or something right before bed you're going to have that boarded growth hormone spike and you're going to get an insulin spike so you're going to start storing you're not going to be burning anything because you're sleeping you know so you're going to be storing all that as fat yeah but we're not saying if someone's on like six meals a day to go straight to two meals because they're going to feel no, terrible, aren't they? No, you can transition, <laughs> yeah. right? So, and I have people 
see it extended and extended. But I've had situations where the only thing I've given some people some guidelines and the only thing they were able to do is spread the meals out and like come back and go, okay, five pounds down just from spreading my meals out. Mm-hmm. And then people are saying to me, well, I, I don't like, I'm not hungry in the morning or I, I'm not, I don't, I only want to eat two meals a day, but everybody's telling me I need to eat three to five, but it doesn't work for them. Right. So we have to find what works for you. And again, transitioning is super important, but the meal spacing is, is the magic. And is there an issue with reducing insulin too much? So now that you said you like the fasting insulin to be between two and five and keeping your glucose relatively low, but is there a point where it can get a little bit too low? Um, and how does that, like, what are some signs of that and how does that affect our body negatively? Well, if, if the insulin gets too low, it's usually the sign of the pancreas not working hmm. properly. Whether it's antibodies to the, to the insulin, antibodies to the islet cells, or inflammation in the pancreas where it's not producing enough. And that's where that CPEP-5 test comes in, where that can tell you how, how's your pancreas doing with creating insulin. Um, so a couple of things with that. Type 1 diabetics naturally have too low in insulin, and that's the the problem, and they're having to take insulin to get that up. Um, People who have adult-onset autoimmune, and they've been diagnosed as type 2, they can have too low uh, an insulin level because of the the autoimmune. So what I usually do is if I test somebody's uh, sugar, I mean, their, their insulin, right, and it's a fasting insulin, and it is like two you know, in that lower range, and they're having certain symptoms, I would also say, that's where I want the postprandial. Mm-hmm. How does your body respond? If they're at a two fasting, it's great. And if they are at a two postprandial after eating the highest carbohydrate meal that they would normally eat, that's a problem, because that's not going to be enough. Or if it, you know, goes down, which it normally wouldn't, or it doesn't go up much, you know, if it goes up from a two to a three after a high carbohydrate, say they sat down and ate, you know, broccoli and sweet potatoes, you would expect that to go up, at least to go up to five or six or something like that, you know, more normally, you know, in the high single digits is a healthy number, then they're not producing enough. And then they're on the road to potentially, you know, pancreatic failure, right? So sometimes type two two diabetics become type one diabetics, so to speak, because over time, the pancreas breaks down and it can't produce enough, so they go from producing too much to not enough. But type 1 diabetics can actually also become type 2 diabetics because they're taking too much insulin and the body develops insulin resistance. So the trick is, if you're type 1, is to take the minimum insulin that you need to utilize the food and turn it into and get the glucose in the cells. And that you want to have the minimal glucose uh, insulin response after a meal. So in a type two, the minimal. Same thing, same rules apply to both. You know, we want to either keep our body from producing too much or from us taking too much because the damages are the same whether we mm-hmm. produce it or we take it externally. Yeah. And are there any benefits of insulin? Obviously it gives our cells energy and um, it can store store energy which is a good thing in moderation are there any other benefits that how it affects the body well it helps nutrients to get absorbed Mm. into the cells as well so it's not just the glucose Mm -hmm. it helps magnesium get into the cells it helps some other minerals and and nutrients to get in so 
that's the benefit. It's, it's basically intended as a hormone that gets produced after a meal to take what we just ate and get it into useful energy and into the cells. Great. And speaking of nutrients, are there any specific foods, so like using food as medicine, that are really rich in these um, insulin-supportive and blood sugar-supportive nutrients that you want the listeners yeah. to increase? Yeah, so magnesium is super important. One of the critical ones, and high levels, here's the thing with insulin, high levels of insulin increase magnesium loss. We need magnesium to work with the insulin to get the sugar into the cell. So magnesium-rich foods, green leafy vegetables, chocolate, <laughs> as long as it doesn't have sugar, you know, mm -hmm. sweetened with monk fruit or something, yeah. right? So those are things that are high, so look up magnesium-rich foods. And then um, chromium is another one, and that's a hard one because our soils are so depleted in chromium. And so oftentimes I'll have people start off with taking a chromium supplement until they can replenish it because they've depleted their, their stores. The good news is it can get stored in the liver. So if we replenish and during the period when we're healing, we can have those stores be there. DHA, which is a, um, one of the, the uh, essential fats, the omega-3 fats, EPA not as much, but DHA especially, you can find that in algae. You know, a blue-green algae, uh, um, algae-based supplementation, it's in fish as well. So there's all these foods that can supply these nutrients that help with the process. Zinc's super important. Um, zinc, again, and found in those green leafy vegetables. Um, whole grains, not uh, uh, refined grains, but whole grains even can be contributing to the insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. So. I have people look at that beans, some legumes, some legumes cause people's sugars to go up. Others don't respond, right? So it's finding that uh, that happy place. And then uh, pumpkin seeds and some other like, cashews and other nuts and seeds are good sources of zinc. Hemp seeds as well. So those are good ones. Um, and there's a lot of others, um, but those are those are the ones that I focus on initially. Great. And I always remember. Um, a few years ago, Dr. Mark Hyman sharing a quote, and it's always stuck with me. And this was about like the health, healthy foods that people swap to that can still have an impact on our blood sugar. And he said how two slices of whole wheat bread could raise your glucose more than a Snickers bar, which yeah. is like mind blowing to some people. Yes, <laughs> and it, me included. Totally. Yeah, I, I get people off of gluten when they're going through this process. I get them off of all flour. Right, and it can be millet bread, but it's still flour. It's broken down, the fiber has been broken down, and it's been much different to eat a bowl of millet than to eat a piece of millet bread. And that's become popular, millet rice breads, right? So we have to be careful about the so-called gluten-free foods that are just basically prepackaged junk food, you know, glycemic nightmares. Mm -hmm. It's it's Although it's labeled organic and gluten-free, it doesn't mean it's healthy, so <laughs> stay away. Try and eat the, the whole real foods. Right. And last thing that I want to talk about a bit is exercise. So are there specific, you mentioned HIIT training before, um, other types of exercise that could be beneficial and how does exercise improve our blood sugar and insulin sensitivity? Absolutely. So trained muscle cells are going to be less resistant than untrained muscles. So we want to keep fit. So uh, aerobic exercise is certainly important, but the thing that affects it the most is we call it called, called it HIIT training. Some people call it HIIT training. Some people call it burst training. But it's high intensity 
intervals, short intervals. 30 seconds has been shown to raise, 30 seconds of high level, like all out exercise, can raise growth hormone levels as much as or even more than half an hour of aerobics. Not to say the aerobics isn't important because it has all those other oxygenation and all that, but exercise is super important. So I generally have people do these bursts throughout the day. Now, you can either do it as part of an aerobic exercise where you're out there jogging along and then you go wham and then you jog along and you intersperse it. Or they, they found that even if you spread them out, and in fact, some studies showed that if you spread out the intervals, it works better at raising the, the uh, growth hormone levels and lowering the insulin. So you basically work all, you know, I have a little stair thing somewhere at my desk right there below mm -hmm. my desk. Yeah. I step, 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 and then I go back to work, right? 30 seconds at a time. And if you do that four to eight times a day, you're doing a lot. And a lot of folks who have tested their sugars in my program, they'll go and do 30 seconds of exercise, and boom, it comes right back down. So there's, there's a lot to be said exercise. Yeah, and someone could just like run up and down the stairs one time in the home. The stairs, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that could be um, a really good thing to bring that sugar down, like you said. And I've experimented, experimented um, with my own. Just going for a walk for me really makes a massive difference. So that yes. after meal, if I, ha if I go out to eat and I have a bit of a heavier meal that I'm usually used to, I'll just go for a quick walk around the block. And in 15 minutes, my glucose has dropped significantly. Now, if you over-exercise, though, mm. if your glucose is, is you know at a stable level and you like, really exercise heavily like beyond what you're what you should be doing for your body then that becomes an emergency response in the body and it goes in it goes to stores that generally doesn't happen if the sugar starts high it usually start happens if you start with a lower sugar or you know like an 85 and there's just not enough in there that to support this your body perceives it as as a stress and it produces cortisol and it causes it to go up okay so that's something to look at yeah yeah you know, five ten points it's not a big deal but you should actually lower your glucose after exercising hmm. like intensity to your, your good to know so if someone's like looking at the graph and they see like this huge spike when they're just trying to um, improve the blood sugar balance it's because of that mechanism so yeah. don't worry too much yeah. And then just to finish up now, just a few questions about you personally, just how you stay hormonally healthy on your day-to-day -day life. First one is, what's your go-to breakfast? Water. So you do, you're a fan of the fasting. I don't, I don't eat breakfast. Mm -hmm. I generally don't eat until oh, I don't, anywhere from noon to four, you know, depending on how busy I am. I generally skip it. Perfect. So yeah. that was, a, that was an easy have, question. <laughs> yeah, it's an easy one. But yeah. if you are going to eat breakfast, I do have ideas. Um, and I have a little booklet called Hormone Hacking Break Your Fast Ideas. So whether you have breakfast first thing in the morning or later, you know, it's the components, which we've talked a lot about, the fiber, the fat, the, you know, green, mm -hmm. the, the nutrients from green. So that's something that's available if you want to give people. Yeah, and I'll be definitely linking that in the show notes too. Second question is, what's one herb, nutrient, or food supplement that you couldn't live without? Oh, herb or nutrient, not food itself. Yeah, food or supplement, oh. just one thing that you can't, couldn't live without. Greens, yeah. you know, like arugula. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love arugula. We've been having trouble getting it the last few days here. It's like, where's the arugula? Oh, arugula. so that's, that's rocket for everyone in the UK wondering oh, what rocket. that is. Yeah, yeah, we call it rocket. <laughs> Yeah, one yeah, of my yeah. favorites too. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. 
it's great for your liver your gallbladder as well so so many different benefits yeah nitric oxide yeah and are there any books that you recommend so i see a book in the background there do you want to tell us a bit about well, this um, is my book unstoppable yeah. health does that um, cover the blood sugar i'm guessing the insulin it must do if it's no going... it actually no, does okay. my next book will <laughs> okay um it's actually it does but not like in the depth that you know, we're going into now. It's mm -hmm. really a book that's designed for um, opening people's eyes as to the effects of food and thought and all that. So it's my seven, my seven foundational habits, you know, food and fun and exercise and mindfulness and outlook and environment and sleep, right? Yeah. And it talks about all those, but it's woven. It's actually a fiction book. Right. It's actually a story of someone who's a composite of the many, you know, patients that I've had over the years who um, takes, goes through a journey and uh, goes through a journey of transformation. Oh, amazing. Yeah, I'll have to check that one out. That's definitely going on my Amazon list. I've got a, a, a 20, like 20 page long list, but long sounds list. like a good yeah, one. Yeah, it's a really good one. It's a good yeah. deal. I think it's like, I think it's like $8.99 on Amazon or it's the Kindle amazing. version is like, or yeah so and it's, it's a short book it's like 120 pages a lot of people said it was their first health book that they actually read cover to cover because it was a story and mm -hmm. like, what's she going to do next and how's this going to transform yeah it's really different to everything else that's on the market so i think you've yeah. got a good a good thing there and then the last question is where can people find more about you online so your website are you on social media let yep, us know absolutely we're on social media dr rita marie on social media and um, we have a really good group on, on Facebook called the Unstoppable Health Group. Um, and it's a strong community of lots of sharing and it's free. So you just have to apply and, you know, go in and answer our questions and we'll let you in. We don't want trolls in there. So we ask questions <laughs> before we let people in. Um, and then uh, my website is drreadamarie.com. It's being, you know, revised and re updated um, as we speak. And I have um, practitioner training programs. So for health coaches, doctors, nurses, anybody in the healing profession who want to learn how to use nutritional endocrinology, which is what I call this branch of medicine, so to speak, of where we use nutrition and lifestyle to actually manipulate hormones. Um, and that's at nutritionalendocrinology.com. Amazing. And you've been kind enough to share with our listeners um, a free guide. So uh, along with the breakfast one that you mentioned, a homemade hormone balancing elixirs recipe book yes. that will um, work like magic and will replace your caffeine to give you that energy boost. So yeah. I've had a look through those and they all seem delicious. And I'm sure that everyone's going to really benefit from, from those as well. So thank you for joining us. And thank you for all the work that you're doing and the information that you're sharing with everyone. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Hormones in Harmony podcast. If you like this episode, please leave me a rating and review as this helps to spread the word to other women dealing with hormone imbalances. As a massive thank you gift, I'll send you a free guide, Six Steps to Hormonal Harmony. All you need to do is screenshot your rating and review, then email it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com and I'll send you the link to download this free guide. If you haven't already, check out my website, vivanaturalhealth.co.uk and Instagram page at vivanaturalhealth for tons more free content and inspiration. 
You can also schedule a free 30 minute hormone troubleshooting call to find out the next steps to take in order to overcome your symptoms naturally. See you back here next week for another episode.